Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shifting Lens podcast, where we're viewing the animal experience. My name is Tiamat Warda, and I'm here along with the podcast's other host, Rebecca Madrid. And we are kicking off season two with this episode after a bit of a break to accommodate some conflicting schedules, uh, health crises, and just honestly, the current state of the world and just everything that's happening right now, we needed a bit of a break. Um, but we're back with the perfect person, I think, to start off this new season, Angie millwood Lisinick. Uh, Angie is a fellow Ease Working Group member and a peer of both Rebecca and I, and a soon-to-be PhD graduate in anthropology, which is really exciting. And she has over two decades of experience working at zoos and working at aquariums. And she actually founded the um, Precision Behavior, which is an international animal behavior and welfare consulting firm, which um, I think you established in 2009, if I'm correct. Yes. And we have links to that also in the description for, for anyone interested more. And um, I'm sure Angie can answer questions about that in, in uh, social media. And in addition to having been the manager of marine mammals at the Atlantis Resort in Dubai, Angie has experience serving as the animal training coordinator at the Fort Worth Zoo, where she was responsible for training programs of more than 350 animal species, which is just so amazing to me, I can't even imagine. And as if that weren't enough, um, Angie was also a member of Disney's Animal Kingdom's opening team with an MA in anthropology from the University of Exeter, and as I mentioned a moment ago, soon a PhD from the same program as well. And we were just really, really excited to have a chat with uh, you today, Angie. And I thought just to offer some context to those who might not know about your research, um, would you like to start us off uh, by sharing what your absolutely fascinating PhD research is looking at? Sure. Um, been talking about it a lot lately because as you said, I'm preparing for the, um, the VIVA, the oral defense coming up in less than three weeks now. No, three weeks now. Yeah, about three weeks. So um, yeah, um, I, most of my research, all of my research um, for this thesis was on um, human perceptions of elephant welfare and emotional states in zoos. Um, and I'm specifically looking at during uh, elephant learning sessions, which are usually called training sessions. So uh, it really focuses on humans, this particular research study, but, um, but it's important for zoos, not only because it, uh, it's important that they understand what their guests see, but um, it's important that they understand that guests believe that animals have emotions. And so when they watch training sessions, they're making um, perceptions in their head. They're making judgments about that animal's welfare and emotional state. And if they're not happy about what they're seeing, that directly impacts uh, the budgets, which impacts their ability to do conservation work and their ability to provide the best for their animals and the best for their people. So um, the goal of the project, even though it's got this, um, you know, anthropocentric focus of it, the goal is actual improvement of animal welfare and human welfare, because uh, most people that work with animals don't go into working with animals so that they can clean up after them. They go into, you know, working with zoo animals or working with uh, service animals or um, farms or whatever. Most of it is uh, the people that care for the animals do it because they want to have a relationship with the animals and they want to care about the animals. Uh, I, I know that's certainly true for zoos. Like you said, I've worked in zoos for almost 30 years now, believe it or not. And um, yeah, I, I don't know anybody that works there just to clean up. They work there because they want to build relationships with the animals they work with. 
Yeah, it's so fascinating. I, and you mentioned sort of the, the practical applications of this research that it's not just sort of a theoretical discussion, but it's really a way for the zoos to perhaps improve improve their ways or improve sort of maybe like outreach or something. Is there some practical applications for the outcomes that you're thinking like that you maybe you've even already started implementing them or you think that could could improve um, welfare and well-being? Absolutely. So the the end of my thesis, the final chapter, I actually included a list of 10 recommendations for zoos so that they can give wow. the best perception of their animals during these training sessions based on all the research that I that I conducted um, over these last few years. And, um, uh, you know, it's through the research, it's I found a lot of uh, I asked a lot of why questions. So uh, not only what do you think the elephant's feeling and how would you rate their emotional state, but why do you think that? Uh, and those were the most interesting answers, of course, because we had a chance to get in depth uh, and find out why they were um, making those valuations that they were making. And it was almost always about um, the animal's body language. They were trying to read the animal's body language. And there are some problems with that um, because sometimes people accurately read animal body language and sometimes they don't. Um, but that is what they're making valuations on is body language. They're looking at how much the animal seems to be enjoying the activity. They're looking at um, um, the trainer's relationship with the animal, how that comes across. And that was one of the biggest uh, parameters through the whole study uh, was they're looking to see, does the person act like they really love that animal? Do they act like they really are um, doing everything that they can for the welfare and betterment of that animal? Or do they seem like they don't really care and they're just going through the motions? And we had both of those things come up and it definitely impacts how they think the animal fares at the end of that. Um, and there were several other parameters that came up as well. Uh, for example, we looked at um, husbandry or medical behaviors because we do that a lot in zoos. So we teach animals to participate in their own care. So we might need to do a blood draw on an animal because most animals get yearly checkups. So they, they have to learn to take uh, vaccines sometimes or to get injections of antibiotics or to allow blood draws just for routine testing. And so if you're doing that type of a behavior, if you explain it well to the audience, you know, this is how we train it. It's in very small positive steps so that the animal desensitizes to each step so that when we do it, it's not scary or unknown to the animal. And they accept it because they know that at the end, they're going to get a playtime with the trainer or a whole watermelon or whatever it is, you know, they're going to get something fun that they really want. Um, and so it's not scary for the animal if you do it through these small approximations. And if you explain that, then they really understand it and and realize that the relationship is based on trust. But if you don't explain it, uh, even something that doesn't hurt the animal, but seems uncomfortable to the animal, like a, a nail trim or a nail file or cleaning their ears or something, uh, they tend to think that their welfare goes down or their uh, emotional state goes down. So um, yeah, those types of things all came up in the recommendations that I made to zoos. Um, and I have uh, disseminated some of this to the zoos. And that was the whole point of the study was to give them practical, applicable, you know, actionable uh, information that they could use on a daily basis. And they seem to be really appreciative of that and, and making some changes uh, based on it. So I guess it's really about, they want to see that relationship between the elephant and the, the handler or the trainer, or however, how, whatever term you use. Um, but I guess, I mean, there would have to be that relationship for them to see it, right? So that kind of that emphasis on the relationship between both of them and um, what kind of came up, you were talking about this, the emotions and everything, and 
Um, I re research not emotions specifically or perceptions of emotions, but, but their management. And something that surprised me in my research um, was when the folks I spoke with were a little bit hesitant, even though they work with animals, to really fully you know, acknowledge verbally the full, rich, complex scope of emotions of other species, right? And I wondered if they're, I guess, sort of afraid to anthropomorphize. Like they always said, oh, not to anthropomorphize, but you know, this, that. Um, so I don't know if that was something that came up in your research at all that they were like, you know, a bit hesitant to, to say they perceive certain emotions in the elephants maybe? Okay, so to answer your question, um, one, of the, one of the questions that I asked people during my research was, um, I asked them five different questions about their belief in animal emotions. So to get a gauge, since I'm asking them about animal emotions, it's important to gauge how much they really believe in animal emotions. Um, and so I asked them questions like, um, do you believe, well, this was specific to zoo animals. Do you believe zoo animals have emotions? Do you believe those emotions um, are similar across all zoo species? Do you think mm -hmm. those emo that uh, zoo animals have as many emotions as your pet has, your companion animals have? Mm -hmm. um, do you think zoo animals emotions, are, do, do you think zoo animals have as many emotions as humans? That type of thing. And so what I found was that um, people across the board uh, these are, again, you got to remember zoo guests and not the zoo keepers or zoo staff themselves, because I think they're a little more hesitant um, to do that sometimes because they've had it pounded into them not to be anthropomorphic yeah. in their descriptions. But zoo guests across the board absolutely believe that zoo animals have emotions. They believe that all zoo animals have emotions. They believe they're very similar to their pets' emotions, or if not the same as their pets' emotions. But when it comes to humans, that's where it, it uh, got a little fuzzy. So a lot of people believed that zoo animals do have emotions similar to people, but they were very reluctant to say that they have them to the same degree or that they, uh, we experience them equally. So yeah, it was really interesting. So, and then that's okay. I mean, because, you know, we don't know, I don't even, you know, I can't say I know an elephant's emotions any more than I know your emotions because they're, they're internal states, but I think it's important that people are seeing them as um, absolutely the same as their pet's emotions. And they do feel like their pets love and have great relationships with them and feel these emotions. We know that they think pets have those emotions. So if they're starting to creep up to thinking that the emotions are similar to humans, I think that's a good sign. Uh, and again, a lot of the science today shows us that we have all the same biological underpinnings. So we don't know if they experience exactly them in the same way that we do because um, you know our cultures are different and that type of thing, but they have the internal makeup to feel emotions. So I, I don't know why we would assume that their emotions would be completely different than ours. Right. Yeah. yeah. I always wonder, because especially you mentioned like sort of this pounding in the head of, of trainers, like, oh, don't, you know, anthropomorphize and all of that. Like, do you think that that might be sort of a coping mechanism in a way, like in certain areas that <clears throat> you might think like, okay, don't, don't, don't uh, acknowledge this broad range, because if you did, then what you're asking this animal to do or where you're asking the animal to live and or whatever the, the case is that, that they're that they're working um, might seem a bit more difficult for them over the long term or um, a bit off of your research now but sort of because you have experience in this field. Sure um, I think that maybe that was some of the case a while back and I'll say that um, 
that's not to say that the more modern uh, zoo staff and modern zoo administration uh, aren't changing that. So I think it's not that zoos across the board are saying that. I think the older staff have st still a little bit of that going on. But like when you see modern zoo administrators, like some of the CEOs that I work with in zoos, they're very happy to, um, to say that animals have emotions. They want their animals to be happy. They want people to see how smart their animals are and that you know they have good relationships with their, um, with their families that they live with or whatever and their keepers. So I think it's not across the board, but I think it's just historically been that zoos wanted to be seen as places of science. And so, you know, in science in general, not just in zoos, but in science in general, you know, it's only been the last decade or so that we've really started talking about animal emotions. Um, and before that, it was just considered, no, that's too anthropomorphic. And if we can't, uh, if we can't scientifically prove it, we shouldn't say it, but right. that's not really the case anymore. So, I, and I think zoos are, are definitely on that train. There's just like in every field, there's going to be some, some holdouts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of wondering what you think is contributing to that shift. So I know for me, my, my time working in a facility, it was um, a facility in Southeast Asia that doubles as a sanctuary, but also provides ecotourism experiences. And the way that they talked about their elephant residents was very much acknowledging their emotions, acknowledging their complexity, but also not anthropomorphizing the concept of anthropomorphizing was handled completely differently. So the education they were trying to provide was to look at the elephants as elephants, not necessarily how they're similar to us, but how they're important in their own right. And I thought that that was such a, an interesting distinction from a lot of the Western perspective on it, obviously problematizing Western as a concept, but for the purposes of, yeah, moving through this, um, I'm just kind of wondering what you think is contributing to the shift in perspective in those Western contexts. Well, I think I'll just speak for zoos when I say that um, I think there's several things that are contributing. I think it's a natural evolution that we go from at, at one point we were looking more at collections, right? So we would say, how do we provide for um, elephants as a species in American zoos? How do we make sure that their, uh, their populations are sustainable? How do we make sure that we're contributing to the populations in the wild? And as people have, um, you know, I, I think as a society, we're getting more to the point where we see our pets as members of the family. They're not, um, like when I, when I was a little girl and I grew up on uh, Indicator, Alabama, but my parents lived on, in, uh, lived on farms and ran farms outside of that community. And they had farm dogs, but the dogs didn't live in the house. Like the dogs were outside protective working dogs or hunting dogs. And they came in when it was really cold in the winter and things like that, but they didn't live inside and they weren't really considered part of the family. They were um, like the other animals on the farm, you know? And I think that uh, we've shifted as a society to where, uh, you know, now our dogs sleep in the bed with us, right? They're parts of the family we would never consider if they got sick, uh, not taking care of their healthcare needs like we would any family member. Um, and so I think as, as we've changed as a society, zoos are changing as well. So I think that's part of it is that their guests started feeling like, oh, animals are more important than just collections. We need to be looking at that individual animal. 
And um, zoos as a whole started putting different parameters around animal welfare. So instead of looking at species groups, we're now saying, and this is part of like AZA accreditation, in zoos now we have to look at every individual animal and, um, and document their welfare. So they have to meet welfare parameters for each individual animal. It can't just be a herd of kudu anymore. It's gotta be, you know, Monroe, that male kudu that lives at Zoo Miami. So um, I think, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure part of that is due to, um, as our society is changing and more things are on television, more things are in movies um, that contribute to that. And so it's just, a, I think, a cultural societal shift and we're just a part of that. Yeah. Does I mean, that make sense? It does. I think, I mean, even the way humans are taught as well has shifted so much in that. I mean, some of the um, folks in my own research I spoke with who were like 70 or something years old, and they were saying, well, when I was a kid, like the, it was taught so differently. And like you said, the dogs were, were taught so differently, not even that long ago, um, and other farm animals. Yeah. Now there's that huge shift also in the way we're just interacting with each other in general, or, or learning about education and learning how to teach others things and care for others. And consider emotional being. So I think that makes total sense. Yeah, I think it's a good shift. I think that, um, you know, when you, when you can look at your industry and see where it's come, you know, how far it's come and that today we are looking at individual animal welfare and it's a requirement of accreditation. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty amazing. And it makes you feel good. It's not perfect. Just like, uh, every, animal field that's out there, you know, it isn't perfect. And there are some really great people. And there are some people that you wish would find other jobs because they're not great at what they do. But I think that's, you know, that's in every field. There are some physicians that are great and some that are not. There's some teachers that are great and some that are not uh, accountants, you know, every single field. So we're never going to be perfect. But I think as long as we are continuing to work towards um, progress, that's, that's really all we can do. Yeah. And I think, especially like you mentioned the, um, a bit about like the different fields within, within, within animal work, I guess I could say. Um, and I feel like maybe within anthropology in particular, or maybe critical animal studies even more specifically, there is sort of that, and I know we've talked about it just in other um, situations, there does seem to be often like this concern for the emotional well-being amongst other things of animals kept in zoos, or there's a very sort of like advocacy against it even, or sort of concerns. Um, but I guess, I'd be really curious to hear with someone like you who's had so much practical experience and also like research specifically this like emotional, even if it's just the perceptions from humans, but still um, like, what do you wish more people knew about the emotional being of these elephants uh, living in zoos? I mean, I know it's just a specific group you were looking at, but. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that I think very few people understand, although it actually has been documented in, in some scientific papers that have been peer reviewed and, and uh, published in journals is that people tend to get uh, stuck on the space constraints. So they tend to go, oh, if they don't have as much space as they would have in the wild, then they can't possibly be happy. But research has shown over and over again, and I've seen myself over and over again, that that is, is not even close to being the primary concern for the animals. It's much more important, the care that they have in those facilities, the people that take care of them, how the people treat them, um, if they're given good social groups, um, you know, so they have good social interactions that they would normally have if they have uh, good nutrition, good um, enrichment, 
I'm not saying that, that space doesn't matter because I think it does. And I think we can do better in many cases, but I don't think it's um, as important as people believe it is. For example, when you have uh, a, a cat that paces, which is a, a, a problem in some zoos with some cats uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, people used to always think that was about space constraints, but when you gave those cats much larger habitats, it had nothing to do with the space. It had to do with hearing their keepers in the back preparing their food for the evening or uh, other animals they wanted to be with were in the back. You know, um, for example, we had a cat at the Palm Beach Zoo that sometimes uh, paces. And I think it's much more related to her being accidentally reinforced by her keepers when she would hear them in the back and she would want to interact with them. And so they would be preparing everything for her. And then while she's pacing, they would open the door and let her in. So she learned if she paced, she got to come in. But when she had a litter of cubs, that completely stopped. Same space, even more cats in the same space, but she had other things to occupy her mind, you know, to interact with. And so, um, you know, I think it just, it, it's more important to think about making sure they have the correct social environment that they, um, you know, if, if they have access to, to have cubs, you know, in their lifetime or, or whatever depending on the species, what you call them, um, calves, pups, whatever, um, you know, that they have social groupings, they have companions, if that's how they're meant to live. You know, some animals aren't meant to live like that. There are some animals that are very, very solitary, like cats when they're not breeding or when they don't have cubs. Um, and so people need to understand that as well, um, because we have kind of taught people that, oh, every, everyone should have a friend too. And then we hear people come around the zoo and they're like, oh, why isn't, why isn't this leopard or this jaguar with a friend, she looks so lonely. This is, you know, this is kind of sad. And I'm like, well, because she's not an estrus right now and she would probably kill it if they put them together. So, you know, they get together in the wild when they're breeding and then they stay with their cubs for a while. But other than that, they, they're pretty solitary, so. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of education that would be required for zoo visitors to understand each individual species need, let alone each individual animal's need. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that facilities are getting better at providing that kind of education? I think that they are. I, I think people don't read placards that are around the zoos. <laughs> they don't, you know, don't. it can, all of the signs can say it. <laughs> all of the signs can say all of that information and they're not going to read it. So I think zoos are getting much better about everything that maybe they did do in the past behind the scenes, they're doing in front of the guests. So all of their training sessions, we're starting to do out in front of the guests because really there's nothing that they can't see as long as we explain it. So we can do their yearly health checkups in front of the guests. We can draw blood in front of the guests. We can give them vaccines in front of the guests. We can do all kinds of things. Even um, I worked at Disney's Animal Kingdom for a while too. And often when they had to do a medical procedure that even required the animal to be immobilized, like for example, we had a lion that had an abscess tooth and he needed to have a root canal. Um, they took the lion to the hospital and uh, opened the windows to a guest area and let the guest watch, you know, and then talk, had people out there talking about what was happening. So I think we are getting better and better at that. The hard part is, uh, this is a, one of the downsides of COVID for zoos is, mm -hmm. you know, they were all closed during, during COVID, which meant total loss of income. Um, and that meant that they lost a lot of staff because they just couldn't afford to have them. So when we were working on getting more staff and having more people out there that had the time to explain this, and now 
um, we're just now starting to recover some of those people, but um, it, that it was a big loss. Uh, some places lost their entire education department over this uh, and they haven't come back yet. So um, I think they were getting better. I think COVID caused a setback, um, but I hope, I hope that will return. I think that just reminded me there was, it might've been last year at some event or this year at some event, <laughs> the years have blurred, but there was something with, um, I think it was Dr. Paul Rose from the University of Exeter mentioning something about interactions with animals living in zoos with the visitors. Um, that might've been him. Did you notice sort of like a, either a dip or rise or something in the emotional well-being of the animals with less visitors or was that not as much of a factor? Mm. That they sort That's of a good question. I, I think uh, maybe that was the case for some animals if they suddenly didn't get as much interaction as they had gotten before, uh, but due to short staffing, maybe. Um, I think for some animals, they got a little more interesting interaction. Um, for example, I know that for some of the animals that were uh, say ambassador or outreach animals, they wanted to, they were used to this high level of engagement and uh, stimulation from park guests. So they would like not only take them for walks around the zoo, even though there was nobody there, but they would take these animals out to like walk through the park and then to the science center across the park and all kinds of fun things. So they got to experience some things that they didn't get to experience before as well. Um, but yeah, I would, I, I really, I, I don't know the exact answer to that question, but um, I would guess that for some animals, yeah, they were wondering what's going on and where are all the people. Yeah. Um, and for some animals, they probably got to experience whole new uh, aspects of the zoo that they never got to experience <laughs> before. So have they ever walked? I mean, is that something that's, I have no idea about zoos at all. So you can probably tell from this question, but is that something that that trainers or handlers or whatever um, do with animals living in zoo that they walk around with them? Like when people aren't there, obviously, like if it's after hours, is that something that's done at all? Or is it usually- It, it depends on the species. Like I'm thinking of right now, there's a, a Southern ground hornbill and she was part of my study at the Palm Beach Zoo. And she uh, is an outreach animal. She used to be in a bird show. So she's really used to being around people. So yeah, they absolutely just walk her because, you know, she's a Southern ground hornbill. She can fly, but she spends most of her time on the ground walking around and she just follows her people through the zoo and uh, she'll say hello to other people and they'll let other people, they'll give them some of her food and let them hand feed her and things like that. And uh, she's perfectly happy being out and meeting everyone and, and finding it really stimulating. Uh, and she was the one actually that I'm thinking of that they took her for a trip um, through the park that's next to the zoo and to the science center just to get her out and let her see some new things. And she actually got scared because she didn't, she had never seen the life-size T-Rex that lives outside the science center and it scared her a little bit and she flew off for a bit. <laughs> she came back, she flew into a tree because it scared her, but she came back down. They, they had to go get her, but she was fine. I mean, that's fair. That was a good probably pretty startling. She's like, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> I mean, walking, walking around and having people just hand you treats sounds like an ideal situation, at least for me, like that would be yeah. a good, good way to spend my day. <laughs> Absolutely. But you know, honestly, they use a few treats for her, but she is uh, so people oriented and mm -hmm. so used to um, interacting with people. It's just fun for her to go out and see all the different things. So you could do it without food with her totally. She'd just walk around and see everything. Amazing. I think that's something really important for zoogoers to recognize too, is the individual differences in what engagement they want. 
I know with the elephants I was working with, there were some that really didn't care about people at all. But if you were holding pumpkin, you were their best friend. Yeah. There were others that would just come over and, and sniff at you. Just like, you're new. Who are you? And like, want to be engaging, regardless of trees. So I, I think it's great that they had a way to help her specifically with enrichment during the, the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think animals are as individual as people's are individ- people are individual. And, you know, just like us, it's based on how they were raised, the environment they were raised in, who they were exposed to, what other animals they were exposed to. Um, and, and you mentioned elephants. My research focuses on elephants. And, you know, the elephants in the study were very different individuals as well uh, because of their backgrounds, because of how they were raised. Uh, and you had some young elephants that were born at the zoo and um, had been with that that exact group their entire lives of other elephants and those exact people their entire lives and so they had never even known a big change of staff and so they loved everybody you know they just will run up and play and do whatever and you had some elephants that you know were moved from facility to facility just one in particular that I'm thinking of and hadn't always been in a good positive training system. She had been in kind of the old um, circus style Incas Mm -hmm. carrying system early in her life. And she's the oldest elephant at the zoo now. And uh, she was very different. You know, it took a long time for her to trust someone. And so uh, younger staff didn't interact with her a whole lot. You had to be at a higher level to even really work her. And so, yeah, it is very different. And, you know, at zoos, elephants are a little different in American zoos anyway, because we don't allow people to um, reach out and touch the elephants or feed them or anything like that, just for safety, uh, safety concerns. Um, but we do like behind the scenes tours where they can watch their caregivers interact with them and watch their caregivers do, you know, husbandry sessions and talk about them and play with them and all that kind of stuff. So they get to vicariously experience them. But um, that was one of their complaints, actually, in some of my research is that they wanted to be able to touch and pet and feed the elephants. Um, but we're just not allowed to do it. Uh, yeah, it actually kind of reminds me of um, Kendra Coulter's sort of concept of humane jobs, because like, you know, if we're looking at all animals as, as workers in their own way, um, those in, in zoos, of course, are also offering something to, to the guests and they're bringing monetary value to the, the zoo as well. And sort of the whole concept behind that is that animals are suitable, but um, suitable for, but also interested in the the work that they're doing, right? Like that would make it sort of the baseline for being a humane job. And I guess there's a bit of a difference then with zoos because you might have animals there, like you said, who come from other backgrounds or they're there because they really need to be cared for or whatever the case might be. I sort of maybe see some overlap with that. I don't know if you incorporated any sort of uh, concepts like that are like animal labor type conversations into it, but it sort of just came kind of pop up to me. Like you guys are both talking about individuals and how important it is to see the yeah. Well, uh, I didn't include animal labor in my, in my discussions, but I will say that uh, I definitely believe there are uh, some animals who enjoy it and some animals who don't, uh, and we take that into consideration. So I'll I'll give you an example, <laughs> um, just of some animals that normally enjoy it, but they're just they're not forced to do it. So at Palm Beach Zoo, I looked at some other species other than elephants, just for comparison. So I did an interactive session with an alligator, the Southern ground hornbill that I just talked about and um, tigers. 
So mm -hmm. the tigers actually are the animals that I had pretty high expectations of for those interactive sessions because they get trained a lot. Um, they really are happy to train. They enjoy the mental stimulation. Um, and, and they're one of the animals that, you know, gets a lot of training time from the staff just because uh, everything has to be cooperative because we're not going to go in and grab a hold of them, you know. If we need to get a blood draw, we, we need them to do it voluntarily because we don't want to also immobilize them if we don't need to. We'd rather do everything 100% voluntarily. But when we did the interactive program that day, um, we decided to bring the guest to a backstage area where the Tigers never saw anyone. It was really just where keepers are always at. And they were so interested in all of these people standing there that they never see. They really didn't cooperate at all. They... Um, they did hardly anything that the keepers asked them to do, even though they know a lot of behaviors and they like their people like, you know, but the good, the good thing was that the, the staff just explained to the participants, look, right. you know, we work on a voluntary basis here. Some days they have social stuff going on, like the female might be an estrus or whatever. And so the male is absolutely not going to be interested in us that day. He's just going to be interested in the female. Um, and so today is one of those days where, you guys are way more interesting than we are right now because they see us every day and they usually don't see people back here. So they are just fascinated with you. And so they're not being highly cooperative. They did a few behaviors, but that's okay. They don't have to, we never make them do anything. So uh, our job is to be so interesting for the animals that they want to participate in these sessions. But if, if we're not as interesting as what else is going on that day, then that's okay too. It's, uh, it's kind of their choice. So they explained that to the guests and the guests were fine with that. They actually really appreciated the fact that no one got frustrated. No one got upset. Um, yeah. But there, again, there are other animals that um, might not want to come over and interact at all. And, and they're not made to, we try to work with them so that they get more comfortable with that because there are going to be times that people they don't know are have to, going to have to be around them like a vet tech or the veterinarian, you know? So for shyer animals, for their welfare, we try to teach them that um, they don't have to worry that when scary people come around, nothing bad's going to happen, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but some of them because of their past will never be, uh, be the ones that are totally comfortable working around large groups of people. Um, so I did have a question about your precision behavior of the consulting firm that you run. Um, I know you started that in 2009. That was prior to your PhD, right? Right. So I'm kind of curious um, how that experience informed your research plans, but also how your outcomes maybe have changed the way you run that in 12 years, 11 years. Yeah, <laughs> me either. Um, that's a it's a good question. Yeah, I always wanted to go back to school even before I started this program. It, it was always a goal of mine, but then I got busy with work and, you know, earning a living and all of that, and then building my business. And so it was never the right time. And um, so we finally got to a point in our business where um, we had brought on another partner. So he was helping to take some of the responsibility. And, um, you know, I spoke with both of the partners that I have in the business. One of them's my husband, by the way. So he's usually pretty agreeable. And I uh, said, you know, look, I want to go back to school. It feels like the right time. Uh, but it will require taking a few things off of my plate uh, from time to time. And they both were more than happy to do that and felt like it would be good for our business. Um, one of the reasons I did it was because uh, I wanted to have a stronger voice in the zoo field. I mean, I feel like our company has a good reputation and, um, and we're very involved in the zoo business. So I feel like we have a voice anyway. People know who we are, but 
there's something to be said for having an advanced degree and being able to publish in peer-reviewed journals and things like that. And that was something you don't need a PhD to do, but I didn't have the confidence or the skill set. I didn't feel like to do that without going back to school. Um, and so that's definitely something I've learned. And uh, yeah, I've loved the process. And I, I think that it has helped some. So it's helped uh, me to have a little bit stronger voice in the community because people know that I have some of the academic credentials to back up some of the stuff I'm saying, and I can now go, but yeah, there have been several studies about that, and this is what they're saying, and I know how to look that stuff up now, um, so so that helps to contribute to it, but I also do think that it's, um, it's helping my company from the standpoint that now we're going to be able to offer some research services to zoos that we've never offered before, and zoos are now excited about someone that they trust can come in and do research in their facility and look for things that, you know, they would want to have questions they would want to have answered as well. Uh, my interest is almost always centered around the, the training sessions or learning sessions, just because that's what I've done for so long. Uh, but there's so many aspects of that that haven't been researched at all. There's, I mean, more that's uh, needed to be done than I'm ever going to have time to do in my lifetime. So, um, so it's, it's a fun opportunity uh, that I can help to design some research projects on human-animal interactions in zoos. Thank you so much for coming on, Angie. This has been so absolutely fascinating and the time actually flew by. I thought we were talking for 10 minutes and I suddenly, <laughs> and it's been, it's been half an hour and I wish I could just keep asking you more and more as always. Uh, thank you also to everyone for listening. Feel free to follow us on social media, but also um, check out the links in the description to learn more about Angie's work. And we'll see you for the next episode. Bye. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.